You are listening to the Long Hollow Podcast. For more information on Long Hollow or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.longhollow.com. Thank you, Colin. Good morning, Long Hollow. Great to be back. Live this morning at 8 a.m. Glad you're here. Well, hey, as an ambassador for LifeWay, I just wanna say thank you for your support, for the way that you use our Bibles, our Bible studies and all those things. One of the most exciting things happening at LifeWay right now is we're getting ready to release a brand new curriculum line called HiFi. And it's an acronym for Here You Feel Included. And it's a line of curriculum for churches that are trying to reach the non-religious crowd. So when I was a church planner in Denver, we realized that most people in Denver don't know who Paul was, what sanctification means, or the difference between the Old and New Testament. And so when I came to LifeWay, I told the search team, I was like, hey, unfortunately, we don't use your products because a lot of the things that LifeWay creates assumes a certain level of biblical knowledge and our people just aren't there. And so we came to LifeWay, my wife and I, and we began the process of developing a next-gen curriculum for churches who realize that in certain contexts, it's becoming this way more and more in the South, that a person has to belong before they can believe. And that means that in the South, I heard Andy Stanley say it this way, that most people believe the Bible before they read it because they had a father or a grandfather or mother But in secular America, more and more people are coming to faith in Christ after they meet Christians, after they come to know what the church is, then they come to know what the Bible is. And so this curriculum is designed for churches who are really trying to reach the non-religious crowd. So please be in prayer for us as it's a huge one-of-a-kind kind of of curriculum that we're releasing later this fall. So uh, that's my LifeWay commercial. I'm done, all right? Will you take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4? Uh, I want to talk to you this morning about how to deal with criticism. Uh, very timely and relevant topic for everybody, I'm sure. And as you're turning there, I just want to introduce you to my family once again. They'll be in the later service. This is my wife, Lindley, and our four kids. Our daughter, Ava, is at the University of Tennessee, and we have three high school uh, boys. And as I was looking at this picture, it made me think about one of my favorite quotes from Kent Hughes about how over the course of time, Christians separate from non-Christians. Like we just, by nature, remove ourselves from non-religious people. And he says this, he says, none of us Christians espouse pharisaical beliefs. In fact, we loathe them. But many of us live them out. Nevertheless, we come to Christ and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that is 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that's 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians. Even our dogs are Christians. And the result is we pass by hundreds without ever seeing them or positively influencing them for Christ. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. Such a challenging word. What is it about us as Christians that the longer we walk with him, the less we speak of him? And we remove ourselves from non-believing people and we limit our ability to have influence. And so just such a powerful quote that, has stuck with me. But the part that really stuck out with me today was this part about dogs being Christians. Even our dogs are Christians. I just brought up a prayer request. I'm going to show that picture of my family again. I have one dog that's a Christian and one that's not. Uh, So would you just be praying 
Sully is not showing the fruit of the Holy Spirit at all. He lives by the flesh and uh, we just are really concerned about his direction in life. But I hope you have dogs and I hope you like dog jokes. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, uh, here is a person that God called to lead a project that seemed impossible the rebuilding of a massive wall around the city of Jerusalem. And things were going really well. If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, things were going really well until two critical people show up that try to ruin his life. And don't you love it when critical people show up that like to ruin your life? Uh, Perhaps this week you've been suffering through the emotional toll of taking criticism from somebody. Do you have any naysayers in your life? A naysayer, according to an online source, is this. Let me just define naysayer so that you can make sure you you see one. A naysayer is one who frequently engages in excessive complaining, negative banter, and or a genuinely poor and downbeat attitude. Naysayers are distinguished by their tendency to consistently view the glass half empty and making frequent one-way trips to negative town. And you probably have somebody like that in your life who always wants to point out the negative and bring you down. Uh, If you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you remember the scene where Clark Griswold has has hung up 20,000 imported Italian twinkling lights scattered across his roof like a fishing net. And when he finally gets the electricity going and the glory of the creation shines forth, he has his father-in-law who steps in and says, you know, Clark, the little lights aren't twinkling. And we all have somebody like that man in our life, don't we? A naysayer is someone who comes up to you every day and has the word no written on their face. This is not gonna work. This is a bad idea. Good luck with this. And when you fail, you're gonna be the only one standing. Cynical, sarcastic, contemptuous, disparaging, nitpicking people. We all have them around us. And sometimes we are that person. You see, we have a hard time forgiving people for the mean things they say to us, but we often forget about the mean things we say to people. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, um, I was gone on a trip for the weekend and my wife, uh, Lindley, she decided to paint my office this really cool color. And when I got home, I was in a really grumpy mood because the trip had been challenging. And the next day, I don't know why, why is it that we say the meanest things to the people we love the most? I told her, I was like, hey, it doesn't look good. And you could just see the enormous amount of pain that registered on her face when I said those four words, it doesn't look good. And for the next couple of days, the Holy Spirit was just working on me. Like, why are you so mean to her? Why are you taking your issues out on her? Why are you saying these things? And so I went back to my wife and I was like, Lindley, look, I owe it to you. Like I dug myself such a huge hole. Look, for every word I spoke, it doesn't look good. I'm gonna give you 10 days of sweet love notes on the mirror every morning for you to wake up. So for 40 days, it's 40 days of love in the Mandrell house. And she's, she's a truth teller. She said, hey, that's actually not what you said. You didn't say it doesn't look good. You said it does not look good. That's five words. <laughs> so we're in the middle of 50 days of love at my house. Because I can say on a bad day, the meanest things to people, we all can. And sometimes people have a bad day and they say the meanest things to you. And Nehemiah was this person who, he was doing this great thing for God and two people show up and they say the meanest things to him. 
And so he remains humble and he gives us a model of, of how we should live when we receive criticism, when we're doing a good work. So if you turn to chapter four, I'm just gonna give you a quick uh, review of the book for those of you who haven't read it. Chapter one begins with this burden. Nehemiah is heartbroken by the news that the city of his forefathers, Jerusalem, now lies in ruins. His people are reduced to mockery. And so in chapter two, he prays for some way to fix it. He, he makes plans. He asks God to bless his plans. He finds out the names of key people that could help him if God would say yes to this. He, he makes a list of materials, he's ready to go. And in chapter three, Nehemiah is given the, the permission to go. He arrives in Jerusalem, he surveys the city, he calls the people to the task, they are going great. Uh, he motivates this massive team of specialists to work on the wall and restore the security of the city. Progress is being made, but then you get to chapter four. And in chapter four, guess who shows up? Naysayer one, naysayer two. And I want you to see how he responds to criticism. So in chapter four, verse one, it says this, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? And then Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him said, indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they're building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt that wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. So let's dig back to the beginning of this passage of the first few verses. Verse one, notice that Nehemiah catches the flack as soon as his project has the possibility of success. Uh, the scripture says, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. That word uh, furious means angry or greatly incensed or all stirred up. When he heard, out, heard that Nehemiah was being successful, it stirred him up. It brought up all these horrible emotions in him. And so here comes principle number one when the naysayers come in your life, all right? Number one, remind yourself that success always stirs up opposition. Success always stirs up opposition. Jesus said this, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Uh, fulfilling the will of God or fulfilling the purpose of God for your life will not excite everyone around you. It will incite them to be envious and jealous and bring out all of the worst emotions. So it says in verse one that Sanballat was, was stirred up once he saw that this project was underway and he was threatened by the success of Nehemiah. You know, I think we can all identify with this question because we have all played the part of Sanballat. Uh, in middle school, we inwardly wonder like, why does everyone think Luke is so funny? Why does he get all the attention? Another person's success causes us to feel bad about ourselves. Doesn't end in middle school. In high school, our self-talk might sound like this. Why does David get more playing time on the basketball court than I do? Uh, if they would just let me shoot the ball 25 times in a game, I'd also score 20 points. In college, we ask ourselves, why does that guy always get the girl? Why does he have such success in getting female attention? And, and then in adulthood, we wonder why the person across the hall got the job when we were so quickly overlooked and not even interviewed. So on and on this game goes of humanity where it, the root of envy 
is always a temptation for us. This little green monster that causes us to inwardly burn toward other people, a brother or sister that experiences some kind of success. It's just how the, the sinful nature operates. We get grumpy when good things happen to other people and not to us. But when the tables are turned and you're on the receiving end of success, God has given you the great promotion. He's given you great favor with your boss. He's given you some wonderful boost in your life. Just be aware that this is hard for all the people around you because it's hard to be a human being and celebrate the success of other people. And this can give you compassion for people who are resentful of your success. So thinking in terms of long hollow, uh, everybody knows like the great revival that broke out here. Uh, imagine another one took place tomorrow because of my preaching this time, right? <laughs> but all of a sudden, like beginning next week, like this revival begins to break out and Robbie starts preaching and more and more people get baptized and more and more people give, like this, this new revival like overshadows the last revival. And news begins to spread all over the country. This church in Hendersonville is experiencing its second great revival, a second great awakening. Do you think every pastor in Hendersonville would be happy about that? Do you think that every Christian in every other church would celebrate that? In a perfect world, yes. But in the real world, those pastors of those other churches have cried out to God for decades, wondering why revival hasn't happened in their churches. And they can't help but wonder, what's wrong with me? That's what happens to humanity is when you experience success, other people feel insecure. And we all see this ugly monster within ourselves. Uh, my wife and I let, read a book recently together called What If It's Wonderful by a counselor named Nicole Zazowski. And she describes how judgmental we can be when people around us are successful. And she writes these words. We see a woman who is driven in her successful career and we tell ourselves that she must not spend any quality time with her kids. Or we see a family with financial means who enjoys a comfortable lifestyle and we console ourselves with the assumption that all the wrong things must matter to them. And if you look inside your own heart, you know that these kind of thoughts happen. That when other people have a season of prosperity, it causes us to inwardly become incensed or angry, or there's some injustice. So don't think that when God gives you success, everybody's gonna be a fan of your success. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. You will bring criticism as you fulfill the will of God. So we see this in Nehemiah's life. Second of all, do not return evil from evil. And we see this here in the, in the passage in verse four, it says, yeah, Nehemiah, rather than responding to, to the, with his emotions to the people, he goes straight into prayer mode in verse four. You don't even know he does it, but he just switches right into prayer mode. Listen, God, let me just put it in the first person. I am despised. Make these people's insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Probably not the healthiest thing to pray but he takes his raw emotions straight to God and realizes that this mudslinging that's happening to him is not fair. And so he takes his emotions straight to God. Uh, do you remember as a kid uh, having a pillow fight? Uh, pillow fights are a lot of fun until one person gets hit way too hard in the face. And then all of a sudden it's on. And the same thing happens uh, with relationships is that we can banter with people but then one thing on Twitter 
and all of a sudden, emotions go really high. And the greatest temptation when we are criticized is to return criticism with equal or more criticism. And so I liken it to a game of tennis, if you play tennis or pickleball or something like that. When someone hits a really hard shot at you, the natural reaction is to return it with greater force rather than hit the drop shot. And when someone insults me or particularly my family or someone that I love, my human nature is to immediately respond with equal uh, force or anger. And after all, the Bible tells us that, that Sam Ballot was, was this way. Uh, he ruled over real estate that nobody ever wanted. That, that little remote area called Samaria, the armpit of the region, he, 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 he just was stuck there. And then Tobiah, the governor of the desert, ruled of the, ruler of the sand people. Uh, those who sit out there in the sun and bake and dry, uh, he could have thrown insults at them for where they lived or the people they represented, or he could have found some fault with them and come back to them with some kind of equal criticism, but he doesn't. He takes his emotions straight to God. This reminds me of Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. This is one of the most difficult passages to apply. Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, the message captures the spirit of this so well. He says this, uh, don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. And if you follow the example of great lives in the, in the Bible, you see this theme over and over. Joseph is in jail, refusing to hate the soldiers that have, have, that have imprisoned him. He plays by the rules and becomes powerful in the prison because of his winsome spirit. David refuses to become bitter toward King Saul, uh, but said in his heart, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. So as Saul uh, continued his murderous antics, David kept a soft heart toward his enemies. And of course, the Lord Jesus gives us the ultimate example, who is like a lamb led to the slaughter and who remains silent and would not retaliate. Nehemiah teaches us in chapter four that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to fly above the fray and to refuse to get involved in evil for evil antics. So rather than take public swings on his opponent, he took his emotions straight to God. So, so verse five says, do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased. Now, why does Nehemiah say this? Uh, don't ever forgive their sins, God. It's almost like he said it that way. Well, I, don't, I don't actually think his heart is pure in this moment. I, I think he's just being honest. And here's one of the greatest things about uh, the Jesus that we serve is that you can always be completely honest with him. In fact, if you read the book of Job or other honest books of the Bible or some of the Psalms, some of the healthiest people spiritually, they take all of this toxic emotion and these angry feelings and all these words and they just take them straight to God who can handle them. But instead, what do we do? Rather than trust God with our emotions and give our emotions to him, we take it out on the, on the people. It comes out sideways. And then there's always more damage. You remember that moment in the New Testament when Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem and he's treated uh, really rudely by some Samaritans and 
his two hot-headed disciples, James and John, sincerely asked Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven and burn these people up? Such a godly response to difficulty. And Jesus says, of course not. That's, that's not the way of the master. That's not the way we do things. And I believe Nehemiah's prayer is recorded to illustrate the way that we should go and speak to God after people speak so wrongly to us. Um, I, I came across this quote the other day. I found it helpful. Is When you are not attached to praise or criticism, an interesting freedom is yours. When you are not attached to praise or criticism, an interesting freedom is yours. As followers of Christ, we must live out our lives before the audience of one, and we must give those emotions to God, and Nehemiah models that. Number three, which leads us to our third point. When the naysayers come, unless the criticism is, criticism is valued, unless the criticism is valid, resume the work. Notice what Nehemiah does after he regains his respect from his time with the Lord. Verse six, so we went back to rebuilding that wall. We rebuilt the wall and until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. Nehemiah knew that the best thing to do with criticism, the best thing to do with the mean comments was to allow it to fuel the mission, to push him even harder into doing the very thing, to take these toxic emotions and convert it into fuel to accomplish the purpose of God in his life. Now, a quick disclaimer is in order here. There, there is such a thing as constructive criticism and history is full of people who refuse to listen to good criticism. So a couple of passages of scripture, Proverbs 12, 15, a fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. So sometimes it's good to take criticism in, to absorb it, to consider it, to process it. Uh, Proverbs 17, 10, a rebuke cuts into a perceptive person more than a hundred lashes into a, fuel, into a fool. So all of us have stories, don't we? Of moments when someone said something really hard to us. And we knew that it wasn't that person speaking, but it was the Holy Spirit. All of us have those moments when we knew this criticism is valid. And so there are moments when we must take criticism. Uh, Psalm 141, David says, let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Uh, I don't know about you, but some of the hardest people to work with in my history have been people who always have the right answer, who are people who never wanna take anybody's advice, particularly someone that's below them in rank. And yet the most delightful people to work with are people who are open to feedback, who are willing to endure criticism if it makes them better. So there's, there's always that moment when we know the Holy Spirit is saying to us, what this person is saying to you may be in the wrong tone, but they're saying the right thing to you. So we can't always dismiss criticism. But having said that, such as in the case of Nehemiah, sometimes criticism is just a distraction and it's destructive. And the reason that people resort to name calling, mocking and making fun is because it works. It distracts people. It moves them away from the thing that they're called to do. And Nehemiah would not be distracted. He would not be taken away from the task that God had called him to because there were a couple of mean people in the world that wanted to criticize him. Uh, in the first church that I pastored, uh, there was a, a sweet widow that gave my wife and I some treasured advice and it stuck with us over the years. Uh, we had become the recipient of some really unfair criticism and some people were speaking out about us in ways that were entirely unjustified and unfair. And this older lady uh, in her 80s, she, she pulled us aside and she said, you listen to me. When you take a little dig, you lose a little ground. 
Don't ever forget that. And so we realize that when people take digs with us or at us unfairly, the best thing to do is just keep doing what God's called us to do. Because over time, people who take digs at other people lose ground and they lose credibility. So leave it to God to bring vengeance. What I love about the story of Nehemiah is that so many days I can wake up and see one thing on social media or one email unfairly written and for the rest of the day, lose sight of the thing that God's called me to do. And yet Jesus, once he set his face toward Jerusalem, he would not be distracted from the mission that God called him and neither should we. So with that, let me see if I can't make this practical and put this into terms that you might be able to apply on Monday morning because we got to apply the word, not just hear the word, right? So here's here's three takeaways in case you missed it. Uh, So number one is always expect opposition when you walk in the will of God. Always expect opposition. So in other words, like we should wake up if we're being faithful Christians and just expect that there's probably gonna be an obstacle in our way today. And it may be the form of a person. Uh, not, some, uh, not so long ago, I was, uh, I was unable to sleep and I popped on the TV and I watched one of those late night TV preachers. Be careful about that, by the way. And this preacher was telling a story about how he was in economy on a plane and uh, suddenly he realized he'd gotten moved up to first class. And the, the, the point of the story that he made was, God wants us to fly first class. And he said this, and I'm like, what Bible are you reading? I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So how, how do we take what Jesus says in the New Testament? How do we take what Paul says in terms of, I delight to, to fellowship in his sufferings? I feel closest to God when I'm in fellowship with his sufferings. How do we take what James says? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. How do we take all these passages of scripture that say, it is through many trials and tribulations that we we inherit the kingdom of God. And yet somehow turn that into a message of, and so today you should expect flying first class. This is is what humanity does. We take uh, what we want from God and we somehow work it into the will of God. And yet the scripture says that we should expect adversity as par for the course. So I just wanna speak to anybody right now who's in the middle of, and I've been there, a really long pity party. You have become amazing at throwing yourself a pity party. You can't believe people have done you like this. You can't believe God would allow this to happen. You can't believe that God didn't stop you from making the decision that has led to all this mess. If you get in that mode, you have made yourself a victim and you are not living in the Holy Spirit of God because God calls you to tasks that will bring opposition. They will bring criticism. And what shows your character the most to the people around you is that you can stand in the middle of criticism just like Jesus did and still fulfill the will of God for your life. So if God has called you to a great thing, expect great opposition. Those two go hand in hand. Just read the New Testament, despite what you've heard on TV preaching. Number two, refuse to play petty tit for tat games. In almost every instance, it is unwise to respond to criticism on social media. I have yet to see an instance 
where someone was unfairly criticized and they responded in the most rational way. And the person said, oh, now I get it. I apologize. I'll delete my comments. I've just simply not seen it work. I've also not seen uh, where I have a particularly harsh critic in my life. I've not seen uh, me trying to win him over or somehow woo him to my side or somehow uh, keep him closer. I've not seen that work. Because if someone is determined to see the worst side of you, they're always gonna see it. And so you can either give the lion's share of your energy to this small amount of people in your life, or you can begin to distribute that energy to the people who are life-giving. What did Jesus say about following him? He said, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. So when you're around people and you can sense that streams of living water are flowing from within them, when they criticize you, you should take that very seriously. But when you're around people and you can't remember the time in this person's presence that you felt the rush of the Holy Spirit, this may not be the person whose words mean the most to you. So all of us should refuse to play the, the tit for tat game. Proverbs 26, four says, do not respond to the stupidity of a fool. You'll only look like a fool yourself. You know, uh, we celebrate the life of David, the man after God's own heart. Uh, he was the giant killer. He was the wise king. He was the poetic psalmist. He was the military champion. Like David is like the poster boy of, of following after God in the Old Testament in so many ways. And yet, if you really look honestly at David's life, he was a mess just like you and me. Uh, David almost ruined his life by overreacting to an idiot. There was a guy named Nabal who started to disrespect David. And David was so angry that he said, all right, all my men, mount your horses, pick up your swords. We're going to go ruin this guy. And if you don't know the story of David and Abigail, you should read it. Abigail was a beautiful, wise woman who happened to be married to Nabal, and Nabal treated David with such absolute rudeness that when David went after Nabal, Abigail hears of this and goes and intercepts him and says this to David. And I paraphrase, David, do not do this to my husband, Nabal. He's a fool. And you're about to forfeit the favor of God by responding to his stupidity. Probably not great marriage advice for what you should say about your husband when he's not in the room. And yet Abigail saves David from responding with such emotion that he ruins his life. So be very careful when someone is saying foolish things to you that you don't find yourself in short order saying just as foolish things, foolish things in return. In fact, I think one of the hardest things about being a Christian is learning to love and pray for your enemies. And Jesus made no bones about this. He said, you should pray for those who persecute you. And not just pray that God would hurl coals on their head. That's an easy prayer. But pray that God would change their heart and bless their lives. This is really the true sign of the supernatural experience. Not that you're able to love those who praise you, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're able to lo love those who criticize you. Refuse to play that response game. And number three, this is perhaps the most important thing I'll say today. Don't lose focus on your assignment. 
at the end of your life, the Bible is very clear about what happens. You are going to stand before God by yourself. You will not give account for your spouse. You will not give account for your children. You will only give account for your own life. And so do not let any man or woman prevent you from standing before the Lord and hearing these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Remind yourself of what scripture says that all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but it's the word of God that stands forever. So if God has given you a word and he's given you a calling, do not be knocked off course. And one of the things that is so easy to do in this life is to let other people distract you from doing the thing that God's called you to do. You know, one of the things I've noticed about horses is that sometimes they get distracted by the world and so they, they get spooked. And so if you've ever watched uh, horses, sometimes you'll see these blinders that they put on their eyes. You ever seen these? Yeah. Keeps the horse from looking side to side and keeps the horse looking straight ahead. And it's such a strategic place on the side of their head to keep them from looking where they shouldn't be looking. And what's funny about this is they're now designing similar things for human beings. I think this is genius. I think we should all have one of these. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but there are weeks when I seem to have the thickest skin on the earth. Like, you can't touch me. You can't distract me. I'm walking in the Holy Spirit. I understand your concerns. I appreciate your feedback. Thank you for the suggestion. And there are other, day, other weeks when I can look straight into the person I love the most, like right in her eyes and say, it doesn't look good. We are such inconsistent creatures. And we can sometimes give and receive feedback so well and other times we're so bad at it. And so maybe you're here today and one of two things is true of you. You've said some really mean things to people recently and you need to make it right. And it may have even been true what you said, but you said it in the wrong spirit, in the wrong tone. Your body language was hateful. Your eyes were hateful. It wasn't constructive or helpful. It was meant to tear them down. And before you start thinking about all the people that have said all these mean things to you, I just want you to stop and think about who have I been in the presence of lately and I have been unduly harsh with them. I've held them to a standard that I would never hold myself to. Just let the Holy Spirit bring a name to your mind. And then I want you to think about that person who has, for whatever reason, tried to bring out the very worst in you. And I want you to just take a moment and ask for the Holy Spirit to give you freedom because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom to not respond, freedom to trust God that He is wise, freedom to realize that all people are naturally suspicious and jealous and envious, freedom to let other people off the hook for their sins and mistakes. Because that's the gospel. God took your sins, scripture says, and he put them behind his back. So I want you to take all those mean words that that person said to you. I want you to take them, I want you to put them right behind your back so you don't see them anymore. 
and just begin to believe as long as you're faithful to God, that one day you'll hear the words you wanna hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have finished the project I called you to. So with that, will you just bow your heads? Will you just do business with God for a moment? Will you first of all, just ask the Lord to reveal to you any person that you have been mean toward, rude, harsh, And I want you to pray for strength to go and to apologize and to make it right. To show them what real repentance looks like. Now I want you to pray about that person who sent that email, who made that comment on Twitter, who said it in a meeting or at a family reunion those words that you've chosen to hang on to where the spirit of the Lord is there's freedom oh God forgive us when we want to hold other people to their sins while being released from ours give us gospel love that allows us to love our enemies even when they hang us on a tree we can say father forgive them they know not what they do and give us the strength to forgive ourselves for so many times when we've said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And God, if there's anybody here watching online or even in the room knows they don't have the power to do this, that this thing I've called them to is just impossible in the flesh, that they would call out right now and say, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my heart. Take over my emotions. Take over my will. Save me from my sin. Make me a child of God today. Give me a heart no longer of stone, but a heart of flesh that wants to follow, that wants to speak words of life. God, today I give you my life. I make this declaration that I'm your disciple. Come in and make me what you want me to be. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make us not just hearers of the word, but doers also. Call us to now go and do these things you've set us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.